Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Our sermon text for this morning will be verses 18 through 14. But for the sake of context, we're going to read the entire chapter, but we'll only be focusing on verses 8 through 14. Give attention now to God's holy word, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, as in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son." But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And... You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister? For those who will inherit salvation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice that you have ordained the Sabbath day to be the day of joy and gladness, a harbor protected that we might come into your presence, casting all of our cares upon you and being refreshed by your word and spirit. We pray now, O Lord, that you, by your spirit, would grant us rest and recuperation through this means of grace, the preaching of your word, and we ask that you would do this for the sake of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray all of this in his name, amen. If you are a student of history as I am, you probably have come across the history of kingdoms, and when you study the history of kingdoms, in particular the history of England, you find that most of English history is a story of kings dying and people claiming the throne. And time and time again, the old king dies and either his son lays claim or an ambitious noble lays claim or somebody from the continent lays claim to the throne of England. One of the most famous episodes of this was the episode surrounding the Battle of Hastings. In 1066, the Saxon king had claimed the throne, a Saxon heir had claimed the throne, but there were two other claimants to the throne. 
One of them you know very well. He's known as William the Conqueror. He had a claim to the throne, and so he came into England to take the throne, which he claimed to possess by right. There was another claimant to the throne named Canute. He was a Viking, and he came from the land of Denmark and Norway. He also had a claim to the throne, and he also invaded England to try and conquer the throne of England. But what I want you to see out of the story of the Battle of Hastings is that you have three men, Harold, William, and Canute, and all of them are engaged in warfare for the throne of England, but they all had to produce a claim. They all had to justify why they thought they deserved the throne. Harold was uh, the son of a Saxon noble family. Canute had married into Saxon nobility. And William the Conqueror apparently had some kind of verbal agreement from a king that fled to France and promised him, you can have the throne if I don't obtain it. Now, however good those claims to the throne were, they still had to produce some kind of claim. They had to produce credentials, justifying them in taking the throne over the, king, uh, the kingdom of the English. But what kind of claim would justify somebody being the king of angels? What kind of credentials would somebody need to assume the throne over the heavenly host? Who alone could lay claim to ascending the throne and ruling over those winged spirits who are mightier and greater than all of the men of all ages? Well, Christ alone possesses those credentials. Christ alone is the rightful king of the angels. And what we're going to see in this passage is that he produces two credentials. Christ has two credentials which justify his claim to being the king of the angels. And what we're going to see in this passage is that because of Christ's royal person, reliable nature, he currently reigns as the king of the angels. Because of his royal person, his reliable nature, he currently reigns as the king of the angels. Verses 8 and 9 describe Christ's royal person. Verses 10 through 12 describe Christ's reliable nature. And verses 13 and 14 describe Christ's current reign. Verses 8 and 9, Christ's royal person. Verses 10 through 12, Christ's reliable nature. And verses 13 and 14, Christ's current reign as the king of the angels. Now we need to remember a little bit of the context of Hebrews chapter 1. Part of the reason I read the entire chapter this morning, I won't continue this practice through the book of Hebrews, but because of how Hebrews chapter 1 is argued, the whole chapter is very tightly woven together. The, the whole chapter hangs together because the author of this letter is making a very important point at the beginning of the letter. And the point that he's making is that God 
in times past, spoke to the, pop, uh, the, to the fathers by the prophets, and in these last days, in these eschatological days, the Greek word for last day is the eschaton, in these last days, God the Father has issued his final statement to man through his Son. And the point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make at this point is that because Christ is higher than the angels, because he is the eternal Son of God, because he is the proper object of worship, and now because he is the King of the angels, you need to listen to this Christ. You need to listen to this Son. You need to give heed to the things God is telling you through the King of angels. One other thing to notice about Hebrews chapter 1, just as an introductory comment, but also to help you understand the scriptures a little bit better. Some of you may be aware that the book of Psalms is divided into five books. The whole book of Psalms, 150, are organized into five different books. If you have a New King James Version and you turn to Psalm 1, it will say book 1, Psalms 1 through etc., And as you move through the Psalter, you'll see there are five different books that the Psalter is organized by. In chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews, the author cites Psalms repeatedly. Verse 5, he cites Psalm 2. Verse 6, he cites another Psalm. Verse 8, he's going to cite Psalm 45. Verse 10, he cites Psalm 102. Verse 13, he cites Psalm 110. Throughout Hebrews chapter 1, the author of Hebrews cites a psalm from all five books of the Psalter. Each of the five books of the Psalter are represented in Hebrews chapter 1. Now, this is an important thing to notice just as an introductory comment about how this author is using the Scriptures. What he's saying is that the book of Psalms, the entire book of Psalms, is about Christ. The book of Psalms is about Jesus, and he does it by quoting from the entire book of Psalms, all five books. What I want you to notice also, and we're going to move more closely into our passage, is that his citations from the book of Psalms are not random. He's he's moving through an argument, and the argument he laid out in the beginning of chapter 1. Look at what he says. Notice how he lays out his argument. God has spoken to us by his Son, who is the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, and he has now been seated at the right hand of God. There's five things the author asserts about Christ. He's the Son. Verses 5 and 6, he proves that. He's the Son. He's the brightness of the Father's glory. Verses 6 and 7, he proves that because he's an object of worship. He is the express image of the person of the Father. Verse 8, he's now going to prove that. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Verse 10, he's now going to prove that from a citation from the Psalms. And of course, at the end of chapter 1, he is seated at the Father's right hand, citing Psalm 110, and he will prove it. Now, this is an important context to understand because the way that this author uses the Psalms is going to be very strange to us as modern readers. When we talk about doctrine, when we talk about the truth of Christ, we tend to think and we tend to expect the Scriptures 
to lay things out for us in a scientific manner. We want the scriptures to read like a mathematical textbook. X equals Y, therefore X minus 1 equals Y minus 1. We want it to be very clear, mathematical, and logical. Now, the scriptures are not illogical. I'm not saying they're irrational. What I am saying is that the way the scriptures communicate is not in that mathematical fashion. The way the scriptures communicate to us is from the standpoint of experience. The scriptures communicate to us in a way that helps our faith. God has given us the scriptures not to teach us logic, not to teach us philosophy, but to strengthen our faith in his son. And the way that the scriptures communicate to us is by giving us examples of piety, especially in the Psalms, and showing us through the examples of the Psalms how to use the doctrine he reveals. And the first doctrine we're going to consider in this passage is Christ's royal person. Notice verse 8. He says, he cites Psalm 45, and if I'm correct, this corresponds to what the author has said in verse 3. The Son is the express uh, image of the person of the Father. The express image refers to signet rings. You know, when William finally took the throne, he had a seal made as the king of England. When he would send out decrees, he would seal those decrees with his signet. And when you saw the signet, you knew that it came from the king. Well, what the author is talking about here is that the Lord Jesus Christ is the signet ring of the Father. The Lord Jesus Christ is the expression of what the Father is like. Whenever you put a signet ring into the wax, it, as we say, leaves an impression. It it leaves a mark, a distinguishable mark. And what the author is saying here is that the Lord Jesus, in his incarnation, is the picture of what the Father is like. And now he quotes Psalm 45. Look at what he says. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Now, to understand what this author is saying, we need to turn to Psalm 45. Turn back to Psalm 45. I just want to show you the introduction to this psalm and what the psalmist is writing about. Psalm 45, the psalmist begins by saying, Psalm 45, verse 1, My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. What Psalm 45 is all about is the psalmist, in his devotion to the Lord, desires to praise the Lord. He wants to give expression to his love and devotion and to the glory of God that he has perceived, and he simply wants to praise God. He wants to praise Jehovah, but notice how he does so. Look at verse 6. 
He praises Jehovah by praising Jehovah's king. God is invisible. Jehovah is an eternal spirit. You cannot see Jehovah with your eyes. You cannot hear him with your ears. You cannot touch him with your hands. Jehovah is so far above our conception that for us to have an idea of what Jehovah is like, Jehovah has to come down to our level and reveal himself to us. He does that primarily in the Christ. Look at what he says in verse 6. He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Notice that in verse 6 of Psalm 45, the psalmist is saying that this king is divine. This is not merely a human king, but he is a divine king. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. He noticed that this person is divine, but he says also that you're not merely a king. You are a righteous king. You are a king who rules according to righteousness. In fact, the scepter that you wield, the sign of your royal authority, is a scepter of righteousness. He continues, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Not only is this king divine, not only is he a righteous king, but he is an authentic and honest lover of righteousness. He loves righteousness and hates lawlessness at the very center of who he is. You know, we can understand a little bit about what the psalmist is saying by comparing this king with some of our magistrates. What often happens when our politicians get caught in insider trading or double dealing, abusing their office? They, they often will get caught and then they will make excuses. They, they will present themselves on the campaign trail as someone who will do righteously. And then when they're in office, we find out they really are not that righteous. They don't really love righteousness from the heart. They don't really hate wickedness from their own heart. And so in many cases, our politicians are worthless rulers. They're not worth the paper that their ballots were printed on. But what the psalmist is saying about Christ and this king He not only does righteousness, he doesn't merely present himself as a righteous king, he actually loves righteousness. He hates lawlessness. And when he reigns, he reigns righteously. Now because of this, notice what he says at the end of verse 7. Because he loves righteousness and hates wickedness, God, your God, God the Father, anointed Christ with the oil of gladness far above his enemies, uh, far above his companions. The word anointed here is the Hebrew word Messiah, and it's a word that means in the New Testament it's translated as Christ. This is a reference to Jesus as the anointed one, as the Christ. 
The anointing oil was a symbol. It represented the Holy Spirit. Christ was anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure. But notice how the Holy Spirit is described. It's the oil of gladness. It's the oil of joy. It's the oil of blessedness above all of Christ's companions. Brothers and sisters, Christ is not only the righteous king. He not only loves righteousness from the heart, but he is blessed and joyful forevermore. Nothing disturbs his joy as the anointed king. Nothing can unsettle his sense of rejoicing in his father because he has been anointed with the spirit of joy above his companions. Now, returning to Hebrews chapter 1, the author has said, this is spoken of the Son, and this is the express image of the person of the Father. Now, among uh, people who are gathered here, this may not need repeating, but in our broader society, this does need repeating. Because many people have created a God after the imagination of their own heart. Many people have created a Christ after their own imagination. You know, when uh, people talk about what God is like, if you've been raised in a Christian society, we immediately begin talking about Jesus. And what do most people say about Jesus? He's kind, compassionate, meek, forgiving, gracious. He accepts you as you are. We've heard all of these things about Christ. Now, in many ways, they're true. Christ is meek and kind and compassionate. Christ does welcome any sinner into his kingdom who repents and follows him. Doesn't matter who you are or where you've come from. He accepts you for who you are. But the thing we cannot forget about Christ is that he is a king. He does rule. He does exercise sovereignty. And the sovereignty he exercises is righteousness. He rules in righteousness. He hates wickedness. That what, that's what makes his heart tick. He is not like us. Even though he's gracious, even though he is long-suffering, he does not delight in your sin. He does not rejoice in your transgressions. In fact, his heart breaks over our sin and over our transgressions. You remember when Christ was outside of Jerusalem and he was about to go to the cross and he lifted up his hands, weeping over the city, saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who crucify prophets and all those who are sent to you, how I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were unwilling. Brothers and sisters, never forget the thing that Christ loves is righteousness. And the thing that he hates is wickedness. And by his grace, he brings you to love and hate the same things. He brings you to rejoice in the same things. He, as you follow righteousness in your life under the power of Christ, more and more pours out the spirit of joy into your life. Joy comes from obedience. Joy comes from righteousness. Joy does not come from self-indulgence. 
Joy comes from obeying the will of the Father. We'll learn that later on in the book of Hebrews. Christ, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Likewise, in your life, for the joy that is set before you in heaven, obey. Because that's where true joy comes from. Obey through the power of Christ. But also, take comfort from the reign of Christ. As I mentioned, our politicians and our civil rulers, or you could put rulers in any other aspect of our lives into this category, church rulers, family rulers, as we see their faults and failures, it can be very discouraging. Many people are discouraged today. They voted for Trump and he turned out to be, well, exactly what he said he was, a rude New Yorker. Many people voted for Biden thinking he was going to produce uh, prosperity and good times. No more mean tweets, at least. And and people vote for these politicians, and, and we begin to put our hope in these politicians. And time and time again, they fail us. They let us down. And we look at the highest realms of power, and we see gross corruption. And it would be tempting to throw your hands up and say, well, what's the point? They're all corrupt. They're all wicked. They're all untrustworthy. What the author is reminding us here is that at the top of the heap, at the center of heaven's rule, is a righteous king who rules righteously. And he will one day return to set everything right. He will one day return to give to every man what is coming to him. Reward for the faithful and judgment for the wicked. Rest in that. Rejoice in that. Use your Sabbath to remind yourself of that. That's what it's for. And so Christ is in his royal person, but also his reliable character. Look now in verses 10 through 12. His reliable character. I want you to uh, turn you again to verse 3 of chapter 1. Notice what he says. He's the express image of his person, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. Now, upholding all things by the word of his power is a phrase that's used many times. Colossians chapter 1 is is another instance of this. Psalm 29, which we sang about the word of Jehovah. This is the aspect of God's rule whereby he is so powerful. Just as he created all things with a word, he sustains all things with a word. He keeps the whole creation running according to his own powerful word. Now, you need to think a little bit with me. You need to think theologically with me for a little bit. The reason God's word is powerful and the reason he upholds the creation is because he is the creator The reason that the creation, which goes through all kinds of changes, which goes through all kinds of ups and downs, the reason that God is still able to hold all of this together is because he never changes. He is eternal and everlasting, the same throughout every generation. You know, my uh, in-laws are in town, and and my mother-in-law, I hope she doesn't get embarrassed by this, is a science teacher. And she gave my son a little weather vane. And, of course, for a weather vane to work, it has to be attached to a foundation. 
The, the foundation has to be solid so that the little spinny thing can spin and the little directional thing can move. If those changes are going to happen, it has to be fixed and unmovable. Likewise, this changing creation is able to function and go through all of its different seasons because the one who upholds it is himself unchangeable and he upholds it by the word of his power. Look at what he says here in verse 10. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak, you will fold them up. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail. Notice how the psalmist compares God's unchangeable nature with the changeable creation. The, the psalmist is looking at all of the changes going on, the heavens and the earth. From our perspective, they look unmovable, and yet one day they will all perish. The seasons come and go, we grow old, we wax old, our hair turns gray, our bodies become frail, and season after season, all of these changes around us, but God never fails. God never changes. The years of his life never weaken. This is what's referenced when he says that he upholds all things by the word of his power. Not only is he a royal person, but his nature as God is reliable. Turn back with me to Psalm 102 where this passage is taken from. And in Psalm 102, we're given an example of how to use this truth. Psalm 102, notice the title. Hopefully your Bible has the titles of the Psalms printed. Those are part of Holy Scripture. In the Hebrew text, those are numbered as verse 1. So our verse 1 would be verse 2, but the title of the Psalm is actually verse 1. And he says, a prayer of the afflicted, when he is overwhelmed and pours out his complaint to the Lord. And look at what the afflicted man is praying. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Incline your ear to me in the day that I call. Answer me speedily. For my days are consumed like smoke. My bones are burned like a hearth. My heart is stricken like withered grass so that I forget to eat my bread. Because of the sound of my groaning, my bones cling to my skin. I'm like a pelican of the wilderness. I'm like an owl of the desert. I lie awake and and I am like a sparrow alone on a housetop. Notice the psalmist is complaining about the troubles he's going through and he is overwhelmed. Like grass in the middle of a drought, he is withered and dry. And notice where he takes comfort from. Verse 24. Second part of verse 24. Your years are throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them and they will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will have no end. 
Notice that because God is unchangeable, because God is eternal and immutable from everlasting to everlasting, the same God from generation to generation, the psalmist can rely on him. The psalmist can find comfort in him. God's nature is reliable because it is unchangeable. Brothers and sisters, everything you see with your physical eyes will disappear. Everything you experience in your day-to-day life will vanish. There is nothing reliable from the sight of the eyes. Your good looks, your health, your strength, your spouse, your children, your family, your friends, this building, your pastor, your elders, your cars, your money, your government, the hills, the heavens... All of it will vanish and change. But in God, we have a rock. In Christ, we have an immovable foundation. In the immutable nature of God, we have a sure anchor of the soul. Place your anchor in Him. Do not place it in men. Psalm 118 says that it is vain to trust in princes. It is vain to trust in men because men change. Men fail. Put your confidence in Him. Anchor your life upon Him who is the unchangeable one. A couple more uh, applications on this note because this has wide implications for our lives. Take your marriage, for instance. Your spouse will fail you. Those that have been married for more than a week, say amen. Your spouse will fail you. And if in your marriage, your sense of certainty and security is based exclusively in your spouse, you will suffer for it. Think about your children. Your children also will fail you. Think about your parents. Your parents will and perhaps have failed you in many ways. Think about your church officers in this congregation. We have and will fail you. That's not to justify mistakes. That's simply to say that your confidence needs to be placed in the one alone who is reliable. God Almighty in his unchangeable nature and character. You need to fix your confidence in him. How do we do that? Well, look at Psalm 102. What is the psalmist doing? He's praying earnestly. He's praying diligently. Notice what it says in the title. A prayer of the afflicted when he is overwhelmed and pours out his complaint before the Lord. That's how you put your confidence in God. That's how you, as 1 Peter says, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Well, Christ not only has a royal person, he not only has a, this reliable character, uh, this reliable nature, but these two things, returning to Hebrews chapter 1 then, are his credentials for being the king of angels. You see, his claim to the supreme throne, his claim to sit on the right hand of his father is nothing less 
than that he is God incarnate. And he alone has that claim to the throne, and so God has placed him in that throne. Look now at verses 13 and 14. The psalmist then moves to the conclusion of his opening chapter, and he says, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? This is a quotation from Psalm 110, and Psalm 110 comes from the fifth book of Psalms, the last book within the Psalter. And in the fifth book of Psalms, that last subcategory in the book of Psalms, the the whole book is about praising God for his victory over sin, death, and the enemies. This psalm then appears describing the reign of the Messiah. And this reign of the Messiah began on the day of Pentecost. Look with me in the book of Acts, chapter 2. Acts, chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching the first sermon of the Christian era, and the thrust of his sermon is not, we are witnesses of the resurrection, therefore the resurrection is true. That's not his point. His point is that because of the resurrection, the last days have come. Because Christ did rise, and we saw it, we know it's true, because that happened, the last days are here, and Christ is now reigning. Look at what he says in verse um, 32. Acts 2, 32. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Understand what Peter's point is. Peter's point is that Christ has achieved the victory. Christ has ascended the throne. Christ is now reigning as the victorious Messiah. All other claims to God's people are void. All other men who would ascend the throne have been defeated by Christ. He is exalted. He has poured out the Holy Spirit. He is sitting at the right hand of God until all of his enemies are made his footstool. Brothers and sisters, the victory has already been won. Christ has already accomplished your battle. As he says in the Gospel of John, be of good cheer, because I have overcome the world. And now he is enthroned as the currently reigning king over his people and bringing them salvation. Brothers and sisters, Christ is currently reigning. There is not some future time that he's going to reign. He currently controls all things right now. As Peter argues... The the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the resurrection of Christ, is the fulfillment of Psalm 110. 
Now in Hebrews chapter 1, he cites that same psalm to say that Christ is reigning but not just that he's reigning. You know, when William finally came to England and he took over the throne of England, he brought with him a whole army of nobles. And after William had conquered the throne, his uh, court, his retainers, his servants followed him into the kingdom and spread his reign throughout all of the kingdom. Likewise, Christ has a heavenly court. Christ has spiritual servants that do his will as the king. Look at what it says in verse 14. Christ is reigning and the angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. The word ministering simply means servant. And so what the author is saying here is that the angels are servants of this king. And they are sent to do the will of the king in helping you and me. The angels are sent to protect God's people, those who will inherit salvation. There's two particular ways for our edification that the angels are used to help us. The first is that they protect us. Turn to Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is all about God's protection over his people. And we won't read the entire psalm, but I encourage you to meditate on it as you have some time. Look in verse 9. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come to your dwelling, for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Notice the promise that the psalmist is describing here. Those who put their trust in Jehovah not only have Jehovah as their protector, but they also have the heavenly host protecting them and guiding them throughout their lives. Now, Jehovah doesn't need to use the angels. He could do everything with simply a word and the snap of his fingers. But for our encouragement, for our strengthening and for our growth in grace, he has chosen to use the angels to protect his people. Think about it this way. If you're moving and you know an individual who's very strong, individual, very strong, can lift couches by himself, maybe he could even lift refrigerators by himself. And you're about to move, and this one guy shows up, and you might think, well, this is nice, he's very strong, I'm glad for his help. But imagine if he shows up, and all of his brothers and uncles and siblings show up to help you move. The more that show up, the more encouraged you would be. Likewise, God in his grace has appointed the angels, an innumerable multitude, to protect you and to guide you, 
even as he says in Psalm 91. Now, this raises a question about guardian angels. Does each Christian have a guardian angel? I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. I think that's a a romantic fancy. It's a nice thought, but I don't think the Bible teaches that. What the Bible actually teaches, though, is that each uh, individual Christian has an innumerable host of angels watching over him. It's not just one. It's thousands upon thousands upon thousands. You remember when Elisha and his servant were in the city? And they're surrounded by the Syrians. The servant is terrified. What are we going to do? And Elisha says, open his eyes. Oh, Lord, open his eyes. And what does he see? A multitude of fiery chariots surrounding the city and protecting them. Likewise, right now, the angels are protecting you. They're protecting your children. They're protecting your walk. They're keeping you safe in ways that you don't even realize because they are so diligent in their work protecting you from the temptations and the evil one. But not only do the angels protect us in this life, I think perhaps the most comforting thing they do for us is that at death, they take our souls to heaven. Look in Luke 16. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. This is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. There's debate about this story. Some say it's only a parable, but this story doesn't have the same characteristics of Christ's parables. This has the characteristics of Christ simply stating the facts. And he begins by saying this, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid as a gate desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Now pay careful attention. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. I believe that this is one of the primary ministries the angels serve in the life of the believer. Because if you think about what death is, Death is terrifying. Death is when our soul leaves our body and our powers of self-control are completely gone. And we change over into that state that none of us have seen, none of us have experienced. Nobody in this room knows what death is like except Christ who rose from the dead and sends his angels so that when you die, and lose the powers of your body, those angels are around you and they take your soul up into glory under their own power. Christ is the king of the angels. And he has sent the angels to minister to you, his people. Not so that we would focus on the angels, but so that we would focus on the glory of this king who surrounds us with his glorious servants because He loves you and I and is going to bring you to the place where he is so that you can behold his glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. We thank you that he is the rightful king because of his royal person and that his nature is reliable. Though change and decay in all that we see surrounds us, 
We thank you that he is unchangeable and he will never decay. We pray now, O Lord, that you would strengthen our faith and uh, edify us in the knowledge of Christ from these things we ask. For Jesus' sake, amen.